0: Hey everybody and welcome to There and Back Again, I'm Alistair Stevens. Tonight we reach the climactic confrontation between Gandalf and Saruman at Isengard as we discuss chapters 9 and 10 of book 3 of The Lord of the Rings, which is a perfectly fine thing to do on a Thursday evening and no one, no one, no one is feeling in any way frustrated because we're not currently watching, I don't know, a Star War for example. It's fine, it's fine that we're all here talking about Tolkien and not watching The Last Jedi. I'm going to see The Last Jedi tomorrow, you guys, and I'm very, very excited about it. Expect more podcasts from the Story and Star Wars feed coming very soon. Before we get into it, a quick note on scheduling. Next week's There and Back Again session will be the last before I take the week off between Christmas and Hogmanay. And in that session, we're going to discuss Chapter 11 of Book 3, The Palantir. And then, because that's a fairly short chapter... I'm going to take some general questions on book three, the first half of The Two Towers. If you have questions that you would like me to answer, the best way to get them to me is to email pointnorthmedia at gmail.com, and I will put together a list. I've also had some inquiries about my plans to uh, to include some more, diver- uh, some more diverse voices in this space. Those plans are continuing apace. There will be nothing happening there until the new year, at least probably February rather than January, but I'm still hoping to hold some roundtable discussions and... Uh and bring some more diverse voices to the discussion of Tolkien and his works. I am also going to undertake a Herculean task in the new year, or perhaps even before Hogmanay. I may well try before Hogmanay to clear out my email inbox and get back to inbox zero. Would that the Eagles could fly me there, but unfortunately I'll have to undertake that solitary march alone at some point, uh, within the next few weeks. So if you have emailed me about matters Tolkien related, then look for a, uh, look for a response within the next few weeks. Hopefully he said, fingers crossed, making rash promises here on the podcast that, that I intend to keep, but who knows? Frustrations happen all the time. I've also had some interesting inquiries about the, uh, the forthcoming Amazon TV adaptation of Tolkien's work, this uh, Lord of the Rings prequel. We haven't really heard anything about this since the initial announcements that Amazon was throwing money at the Tolkien estate for licensing and then throwing money at the development of at least two seasons of, of television. Um, I will definitely, definitely be talking about that show when it comes out. I may also be talking about that show in advance of its release, and not just talking about uh, promotional material, but talking about the adaptive process. As as it becomes clear. I think uh, a few shows dedicated to speculation about that show, as soon as we have something about which we might speculate, would be really fun and interesting. So stay tuned for more of that. As I say, we're wrapping up the, the middle of The Two Towers next week, which brings us to the halfway point of The Lord of the Rings. Not quite the halfway point of There and Back Again. We'll hit the halfway point of There and Back Again. Sometime in February, I suppose, this series is going to run now, I think, until the end of March 2019, barring any unforeseen circumstances, as we discuss the rest of The Lord of the Rings, then all six Peter Jackson movies, and then The Silmarillion. We're going to spend, uh, three, four months talking about The Silmarillion too. right at the tail end of next year and into 2019... Never let it be said that my plans were anything other than wildly ambitious. Uh, It is great to have everyone here tonight. Ty says longevity is not a bad thing. Turns out that's good, because longevity is the thing at which I am perhaps best. Uh, Sarah is joining us, and Becca is here. Jackie is here. Tolkien Lover is joining us tonight. Tolkien Lover, it is great to have you with us tonight. Uh, And we have a special guest. The son of Nemo Anonymous is joining us tonight. I hope you have a really good time during our discussion of the the confrontation between Gandalf and Saruman. the confrontation between Saruman and everyone, everyone who was marshaled at Isengard. We all have things to say to Saruman, it turns out. But we're also going to get, in our discussion of chapter 10 of book three, one of the best and most developed conflicts between light and dark, good and evil, that we actually get in the pages of the Lord of the Rings. We're going to get other conflicts, of course. We're going to get other moments of stark contrast between light and dark, particularly as we move into the return of the king. But this is one of the most developed, one of the most articulated conflicts between light and dark that we'll get in the entire in the entire novel. So uh, I'm really looking forward to talking about that. And so that we can talk about that, so that we have lots of time to talk about that, we're going to skim a little bit little over chapter 9, which is a really fun chapter, but as the title implies, Flotsam and Jetsam, we are left at this point with some detail, just just some accumulation of detail, some accumulation of, of detritus, I suppose, that we must deal with, that we must clean out, much as the ants, you know, pull down the dams surrounding Isengard and let the cleansing water flow, so we are left with some narrative de- uh, detritus that we must address. We have to figure out what it was that happened to Marion Pippin, what it was that happened on the field of Isengard here in the Vale of non in the shadow of the Misty Mountains. So we're going to kind of skim this chapter a little bit. I haven't pulled too many slides, but I do want to talk about the battle itself. Just give you a quick gloss of the battle so that you know. And also to talk a little about Huorns. Huorns march with the Ents. The Huorns are not, in their entirety, all the trees of Fangorn, right? The the appearance of the trees outside of Helm's Deep and the appearance of the trees outside Isengard, not all of those trees are Huorns. But the Huorns are present, as Merry and Pippin will explain to us in the course of chapter nine. And the Huorns are... Interesting. We talked before about uh, trees rousing to wakefulness under the, uh, under the guidance of the shepherds of the forest, under the guidance of the ants, and also of ants that have become more treeish, as you might say, as Treebeard tells us. Both of those things, these, these semi-ants, these demi-ants, I suppose, are huorns. Whether they are trees that have been woken into a rough sentience or ants that have slowed down and kind of lost their, their higher faculties, all of these trees combined are Huorns. They're not actually the trees of Fangorn, like the trees of Fangorn are still trees, but there are these kind of intermediate characters that that occupy some space between ants and trees themselves. Huorns are fascinating. Huorns are very evocative, right? There are a lot of fans of Tolkien who care a lot about the Huorns, but we don't get a lot of information. I should say that Huorns, the the, the name themselves, and even that plural is a little shaky. We're not sure that it's Huorns and not just Huorn, that Huorn isn't both the singular and the plural form of this name. The word itself seems to come according to the reader's companion to The Lord of the Rings, which you can probably see on the shelf behind me, or could see on the shelf behind me if I hadn't left that uh, introductory slide up. Yes, there it is, the, the little black book right at the end of the shelf there, uh, Huons, according to the Reader's Companion, come from the word the root "kug" or "hug," meaning bark or bay, and "orn," the Sindarin word for tree. The, the root that we see in Maloran, for example, right? That's the same the same uh, the same constituent part there that we get in Maloran. It just simply means tree. And bark and bay is interesting because, of course, bark and bay have connotations with trees. Trees have bark, and bay trees are things too, right? These words exist within the kind of arboreal realm, but that is not the meaning that is implied here, I think. We get the account from from Mary. We get this line of dialogue from Mary. They still have voices and can speak with the ants. That is why they are called Huorns, Treebeard says. The interesting thing about that is that the use of bark and bay there suggests that these voices are not fully formed, that the Huorns are in some sense, bestial. That they are, in some sense, animalistic. That they are not sentient. They are aware in the way that animals are aware. They bark and they bay more than communicate directly. But they can still take direction and take, as we see, leadership from the ants. So the Huorns are present with the Ents on the attack on Isengard, which is an attack that only works because Isengard has been emptied of orcs. The Urichai and, uh, and their, their human allies have marched forth to contend with uh, the Rohirrim, with the men of Rohan at Helm's Deep, which is why question mark, the assault on Isengard works out at all. I'm not convinced that that's the case. I'm not convinced that the Ents couldn't have brought the fight. They couldn't have thrown down in the Vale of Isengard, as I've said previously, that they couldn't have brought the fight to the massed forces of Saruman, but in the end, of course, they don't. They march to Isengard. They don't find it terribly well defended. Treebeard himself tears down the gates of Isengard as the orcs try to flee. Many are killed by the huorns that surround Isengard in much the same way as the orcs were killed in in the shadow of 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 the Hornburg at Helm's Deep. Saruman is still on the ground. He's still within Orthanc when this attack takes place, but doesn't take direct action. He's almost caught by Quickbeam, but he retreats to Orthanc and starts up the the baleful machinery beneath the veil of Isengard, which burns and scorches many of the ants as they march across the veil. Uh, Treebeard then calms the ants, he provides leadership and wisdom and guidance as is his way, and they tear down the dam, releasing the river and cleansing Isengard of all that Saruman has wrought. Not All that Saruman has wrought yet, I suppose, that process is still going to be ongoing, but we're we're going to get there. That's a rough kind of uh, encapsulation of what happens during the Battle of Isengard. Let me see here. Um, Sarah's quoting one of my favorite lines from the pilot episode of The West Wing. The president, while riding his bicycle on vacation at at Camp David, came to a sudden arboreal stop. It is a wonderful thing that one of the major subplots in the pilot episode of The West Wing is the president riding his bike into a tree. It's very good. It's very good. The West Wing is a knockout TV show, you guys. I may well do a podcast about it someday. That's just been there for uh, forever. Um, Let me see here. Oh, uh, Varieg of Khand is also saying, uh, Haig, uh, Old English for thinking or thought and wisdom. That's really interesting too. So this may be... Using an Old English term here would suggest a connection with the Rohirrim, which I'm not sure that I buy completely. I'm now... Filtering through my memory to think if I can if I can identify any moment when Treebeard displays a knowledge of the language of the Rohirrim, and I'm not sure that I've got it. I don't think necessarily that that is a language with which uh, Treebeard is is terribly familiar, but certainly it, it's interesting. I would go to the Sindarin myself, right? The the uh, the hug uh, the the k h u g root from the Sindarin makes a lot of sense there, but uh, that is certainly an interesting point of comparison, and certainly a point of comparison that uh, the professor would have been mindful of as he named the Huorns themselves. I have to say, you guys, that the WHOORNS don't really work for me. The WHOORNS as a underdeveloped element in Tolkien's Legendarium just don't really work. They are evocative, which I think is why they are so interesting, right? This is true of the Ents in general. We get a fair amount of information about the Ents, but we don't get much about the horns, and we don't get much about the Entwives, and we don't get much about what their culture was like before this division between Ents and Entwives, and I think that that very absence is one of the reasons that so many readers are enchanted by the Ents, as well, of course, as the the terribly strong characterization for both Treebeard and Quickbeam that we get earlier in this book of the Two Towers. Um, um, let me see here as I catch up with the chat. All right. I think we're here. I think we're good. Um, There's a podcast on the West Wing. says Sarah, the West Wing Weekly. Um, but oh, oh, she's not terribly complimentary about it. There are great uh, West Wing podcasts out there that, that I can recommend. Uh, it is a very good show, but no one I think has really delved into that narrative aspect. Um, which is tricky because of the way that the West Wing is written. All of that, though, we'll, we'll put a pin in all of that for the, the inevitable West Wing podcast that's going to happen at some point. Okay, let's get into it then and talk about Flotsam and Jetsam, our uh, unification here with Mary and Pippin and the first of a handful of fairly quiet domestic scenes. The three were soon busy with their meal and the two hobbits unabashed set to a second time. We must keep our guests company, they said. "'You are full of courtesy this morning,' laughed Legolas. "'But maybe if we had not arrived, you would already have been keeping one another company again.' "'Maybe. Why not?' said Pippin. "'We had foul fare with the orcs, and little enough for days before that. "'It seems a long while since we could eat to heart's content.' "'It does not seem to have done you any harm,' said Aragorn. "'Indeed, you look in the bloom of health.' Aye, you do indeed, said Gimli, looking them up and down over the top of his cup. Why, your hair is twice as thick and curly as when we parted, and I would swear you have both grown somewhat, if that is possible for hobbits of your age. This Treebeard, at any rate, has not starved you. He has not, said Mary. But Ents only drink, and drink is not enough for content. Treebeard's draughts may be nourishing, but one feels the need of something solid, and even Lembus is none the worse for a change. "'You've drunk of the waters of the ants, have you?' said Legolas. "'Ah, then I think it is likely that Gimli's eyes do not deceive him. "'Strange songs have been sung of the drafts of Fangorn.' "'Many strange tales have been told about this land,' said Aragorn. "'I have never entered it. Come, tell me more about it and about the ants.' "'Ants!' said Pippin. "'Ants are—well, ants are all different, for one thing, but their eyes now—their eyes are very odd.' He tried a few fumbling words that trailed off into silence. Oh, well, he went on. You have seen some at a distance already. They saw you at any rate and reported that you were on the way, and you will see many others, I expect, before you leave here. You must form your own ideas. The connection between physical stature and greatness... Is a really interesting one in the Lord of the Rings. Merry and Pippin, no spoilers, are actually taller now. They are actually more physically significant than they used to be, and that is in part because they have drunk deep of the draughts of Treebeard. You remember when he gives them the little, uh, the little cups of of water, of of a clear substance that they they drink down and feel restored and replenished. But there is magic in those draughts, and they are now, you know. Embiggened. They are now larger than once they were, which is absolutely appropriate because throughout The Lord of the Rings, we've been seeing this connection between physical size, physical stature, and notoriety, value, virtue even? The men of Numenor are tall, and Aragorn has inherited this. Aragorn stands six feet, six inches tall. Boromir, six feet and four inches tall. The great men are physically great. Of course, Aragorn's ancestor, Elendil, who came from Numenor. Aragorn describes himself more than once in the course of this book, and has described himself very recently, in fact, as Elendil's heir, you know. Uh, Elendil the tall is more than seven feet tall. The men of Numenor were giants in stature, and That that stature, that physical significance does seem within the frame of Tolkien to be connected to greatness. Greatness, though, is not an unproblematic concept, right? We're going to spend a lot of time, particularly in book four of The Two Towers, talking about the small folk. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about the quieter virtues of the Shire, of Hobbits, of Frodo, and of course, of Sam, and even in a sense the virtues of Smeagol, what what virtue remains in, in Gollum's twisted and darkened heart. So it's really interesting here to see that Merry and Pippin have both grown in stature, they have kind of entered into a different kind of story, entered into a different realm, entered into a different mode. You know, the, the description of Merry and Pippin is now just grander than it was, though, of course, as we see from this passage and many other passages through this chapter, they have not left behind their hobbitish roots. Here they settle down to a second breakfast. When we, when we find them, of course, in the previous chapter, we find them enjoying fine food and drink and pipeweed there on the, the ramparts of Isengard, welcoming people, uh, welcoming Theoden specifically, as he arrives at Isengard. So they have already eaten and now they are settling down to their second breakfast in the company of their three long absent friends. And we get this uh, this note here. It does not seem to have done you any harm, said Aragorn. Indeed, you look at the bloom of health. I, you do indeed, said Gimli, looking them up and down over the top of his cup. This tree beard, at any rate, has not starved you. Here we see the great virtue of hobbits is their ability to both find and value comfort. We talked about this all the way back in Buckland when we were talking about the bath song, right? That, that elves appreciate the beauty of the natural world and men appreciate the utility of the natural world and dwarves appreciate the artistry that comes forth from the natural world, the, the, the creation of beauty that springs forth from, from natural resources. But hobbits, hobbits value comfort, Comfort is their primary value in the world, and here we see another great uh, example of that from uh, from Mary and Pippin. Here we also get Pippin's faltering description of ants. He struggles. Uh, ants are all different, for one thing. I can't describe ants. In general, because ants in general, that, that's not like a meaningful taxonomic distinction. All ants are different. The difference between Treebeard and Quickbeam is as profound as the difference between one tree and another. They are just fundamentally different, except, of course, for the eyes. And you'll remember that we talked much about the uh, the eyes of Treebeard and the eyes of ants when they were introduced a few chapters ago. Um, let me see here as we come back pack uh, as we come back um are we talking about Bullroarer took um yes some taller hobbits in fellowship of the ring like Bullroarer. um not Bullroarer. what was his name oh we're getting uh bandabrus uh, provides sarah Bullroarer is his nickname yes Bullroarer, the largest of the Tooks, who it is said could ride a pony like wow how tall must that hobbit have been maybe maybe five feet maybe five and a half feet tall that's pretty statuesque for a hobbit you guys Yes, good, good. The golf inventor provides Gilbert's winters. Yes, excellent. And, and as Ty says, trying to explain ants as a whole is like trying to explain trees in general, right? You can give some cursory descriptions, but how can you? How would you even begin to describe trees? If you were describing trees to someone who had never seen them, someone who had never experienced them, someone who had never even read of them, how would you describe trees? Well, they're large and the bark is brown, except when it isn't, and the leaves are green, except when they aren't, but they all have leaves, except when they don't, and they lose those leaves in the winter, except when they don't, and trees are riotous. You know, this is part of the, uh, a part of the dominion of yavana right? This is one of the great things that sets apart animals and, and you know, that sets apart flora and fauna, I suppose we might say, that, that animals are in some sense all akin. A wolf is a wolf is a wolf, and there are minor variations within that. Men are men are men, hobbits are hobbits are hobbits, but there is a a riotous, cacophonous diversity within within Yavanna's domain, within the, the realm of, of plants and and all growing things that grow from the earth. So that's our kind of settling back into a more domestic rhythm here. We get some hobbitry here. We get some, some casual conversation between Merry and Pippin and their friends. And then we get the catch-up conversation. Well, my tale begins with waking up in the dark and finding myself all strung up in an orc camp, said Pippin. Let me see, what is today? The 5th of March in the Shire Reckoning, said Aragorn. Pippin made some calculations on his fingers. "'Only nine days ago,' he said. "'It seems a year since we were caught. "'Well, though, half of it was like a bad dream. "'I reckon that three very horrible days followed. "'Mary will correct me if I forget anything important. "'I'm not going into details. "'The whips and the filth and the stench and all that, "'it does not bear remembering.' "'With that, he plunged into an account of Boromir's last fight "'and the orc march from Eminmul to the forest. "'The others nodded at the various points as the various points were fitted in with their guesses. "'Here are some treasures that you let fall,' said Aragorn. "'You will be glad to have them back.' He loosened his belt from under his cloak and took from it two sheathed knives. "'Well,' said Merry, "'I never expected to see those again. I marked a few orcs with mine, but Ugluk took them from us. How he glared. At first I thought he was going to stab me, but he threw the things away as as if they burned him.' "'And here also is your brooch, Pippin,' said Aragorn. "'I have kept it safe, for it is a very precious thing.' "'I know,' said Pippin. "'It was a wrench to let it go, but what else could I do?' "'Nothing else,' answered Aragorn. "'One who cannot cast away a treasure at need is in fetters.' You did rightly. Calling back to One of our oldest conflicts, of course, the desire for gold, the desire for riches, the desire for trinkets, the desire, even in a sense, for magic, which is an interesting piece of complexity, an interesting wrinkle being thrown into our discussion of greed and avarice and desire in general, lust in the the old English form of the word, because we're going to talk about Saruman and we're going to talk about Saruman's great craft, the things that he has created, the works that he has wrought here in Isengard. Ring maker, if you recall, and of course he has created, well, a couple of other things. He created the heavy ordnance, the artillery, the cannon that was used against the gates of uh, of the Hornberg against the gates of. of uh, of Helm's Deep, at least, he has crafted here the Orochai. We're going to get some descriptions of the ways in which these orcs are different from orcs that we have seen previously and more like men, indeed, directly more like the men that we've seen back in Bree, right? There are suspicions here that these half-orcs may be more widespread than we might have suspected at this point. Pippin is also displaying here the other great hobbitish quality which is a willingness to move forward, a willingness to set aside the hardships of the past. You know, we've focused on this a couple of times, fleetingly all the way back in the Hobbit, of course. Bilbo's ability to recover, Bilbo's ability to bounce back from adversity, to bounce back from physical difficulty, to bounce back from 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 conflict and from danger is remarkable in the Hobbit, and of course Frodo has demonstrated that ability times 10 that ability you know raised exponentially because he has weathered the assault on weathertop he has has taken in the wound of the morgul blade and traveled then to rivendell and been restored by it and everyone is surprised at the speed of that restoration and By the degree of that restoration, you know, we get these lines from Gandalf saying, other people could not have done, Frodo, what it is that you have done, which is very powerful. And Jackie says, if I were Aragorn, I'd be very proud of the hobbits for thinking to leave the brooch behind. They've learned a thing or two about tracking and trackers. Hobbits are resourceful, right? This is one of the things that oftentimes goes overlooked about hobbits, but they are resourceful. This is true of Bilbo in the Hobbit. It is true of of our our conspiracy, our walking party back in, in the Shire. It is true of our passage through the old forest, of our crossing of the Barrow Downs, though, well, the crossing of the Barrow Downs and the, the intercession there of Tom Bombadil does perhaps change things a little bit, but yes, hobbits are very resourceful, and this was a moment of great wisdom. But Aragorn here ties this moment of this this moment of practical wisdom of, of pragmatism here from Pippin to something higher. One who cannot cast away a treasure at need is in fetters. Yes, it's valuable. I absolutely get that it's valuable, which is why I picked it up and why I have returned it to you. It is a very precious thing, as Aragorn says. He acknowledges the value of the the leaf brooch here, but you did right throwing it away, not just because you left us a marker, not just for its actual practical value, but because you recognized in a moment of need that this was just a trinket. You have not fallen under the spell of the leaf brooch as people fall under the spell of great artifacts like... The Arkenstone, or the One Ring, or in fact any of the rings, or as we'll see in next week's reading, the Palantir. The Palantir exerts a similar kind of, a similar compulsive pressure, which is of course ironic because Pippin is going to fall under the sway of the Palantir to a certain degree. So he is practical, but not yet perhaps Wise, So this is our account catching up on the dates. The 5th of March in the Shire Reckoning, only nine days ago, says Pippin, and we noted last time how swiftly the Two Towers has passed, how little time is actually occupied by these chapters or, or filled by these chapters, I suppose. Let's, um, yeah, and of course I'm being reminded too, as I'm sure all of you are, of the end of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and the desire to keep the Holy Grail in his grasp as he's falling into the, the boundless chasm beneath the earth and the giving up of the Holy Grail to his... Uh, to his you know uh the giving up of the holy grail in the name of rescue i suppose is what we should say yes let's move on then to a brief account of the ants i said that we're going to skim over most of this this is the passage that i have pulled here well in the early night we crept down a long ravine in the upper end of the wizard's veil vale. the ants with all their rustling horns behind we could not see them of course but the whole air was full of creaking it was a very it was very dark a cloudy night they moved at a great speed as soon as they had left the hills and made a noise like a rushing wind. The moon did not appear through the clouds, and not long after midnight there was a tall wood all around the north side of Isengard. There was no sign of enemies, nor of any challenge. There was a light gleam- gleaming from a high window in the tower. That was all. Treebeard and a few more ants crept on, right round to within sight of the great gates. Pippin and I were with him. We were sitting on Treebeard's shoulders, and I could feel the quivering tenseness in him. But even when they were roused, ants can be very cautious and patient. They stood still as carved stones, breathing and listening. Then all at once there was a tremendous stir. Trumpets blared and the walls of Isengard echoed. We thought that we'd been discovered and the battle was going to begin, but nothing of the sort. All Saruman's people were marching away, I don't know much about this war or about the horsemen of Rohan, but Saruman seems to have meant to finish off the king and all his men with one final blow. He emptied Isengard. I saw the enemy go. Endless lines of marching orcs and troops of them mounted on great wolves, and there were battalions of men, too. Many of them carried torches, and in the flare I could see their faces. Most of them were ordinary men, rather tall and dark-haired and grim, but not particularly evil-looking "'but there were some others that were horrible. "'Man-high, but with goblin faces, "'sallow, leering, squint-eyed. "'Do you know, they reminded me at once "'of that southerner at Bree, "'only he was not so obviously orc-like "'as most of these were.' "'I thought of him, too,' said Aragorn. "'We had many of these half-orcs to deal with at Helm's Deep. "'It seems plain now that the southerner "'was a spy of Saruman's. "'But whether he was working with the Black Riders "'or for Saruman alone, I do not know. "'It is difficult with these evil folk "'to know when they are in league "'and when they are cheating one another.' Aragorn, again, Aragorn just making a habit of capping my slides here by twisting, by by, by pivoting the conversation to, you know, some of the grandest themes in Tolkien's Legendarium. Yes, Aragorn, thank you. The giving up of treasures at need, that's a really good thing. Good, thanks for for defining that for us. Thanks for writing that on a post-it and sticking it to our thematic corkboard there. Oh, and also here, here you say that evil turns upon itself and is consumed by itself. Thanks, yes, you're absolutely right, Aragorn. You're wise. You're wise, is the thing about you, Aragorn. So we see here, I guess I guess I said earlier that I, I'm not so sure that the ants would not have triumphed if they had marched against, against Isengard at its fullest strength. It seems as though little could have daunted Treebeard and the other ants and the Huorns and the forest, you know, from, from from sweeping Isengard clean, even if the armies of the uruk and the Man had remained there. But perhaps that's not true. Perhaps at least the cost would have been pyrrhic, right? The cost would have been terrible if the ants had marched against uh, Isengard. Perhaps all of the remaining ants would have fallen and ants would have been removed from the face of the earth. Perhaps we could have witnessed an actual, you know, extinction level event for ants here, at least in this part of the world. It is certainly possible. But here we have this moment of hey, say it with me, you catastrophe. Because the orcs marched against Rohan, because they marched to Helm's Deep and we had the darkest moment for the Rohirrim in their entire five-century-long history, because they were as hard-pushed as the men of Rohan have ever been, because they stared defeat full in the face, because of that, Isengard was empty and the Ents won an easier victory, if not an outright easy victory, in fact. It's a powerful, uh, again, another powerful thematic point. And that's really what I'm talking about when I'm talking about clearing up the flotsam and jetsam of our narrative at this point. Tolkien does something extremely ambitious in the pages of the Two Towers, right? This is extremely ambitious to give us these two-slash-three fractured perspectives on these events, events that are unfolding simultaneously, right? We kind of get the perspective of Merry and Pippin and Treebeard, we get that story off in one corner, in one thread of narrative, then we get the story of Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli, and then we get the kind of separate thread, I would argue, of Gandalf and Theoden and the Rohirrim riding to war, the restoration of Theoden, of course, and the riding to war of the men of the Rohirrim. Those three threads interact beautifully, but of course you're left with a certain amount of, of accumulated detail that has to be resolved. And the professor was never going to leave this story untold. He was never going to leave this untold. But rather than cutting away from Helm's Deep to Isengard, which would have been one narrative choice, instead we preserve the, the mythic primacy of Helm's Deep. And we now give the story of Isengard to the Hobbits. We let the Hobbits relate this tale in a ton of attributed dialogue, right? They're telling us the story, which is a great example of stories happening within stories within stories here. This is another great insight into the kind of documentary history of, of, um, of these books, of the Red Book that has come down to us through the work, through the, the adaptive translation of Professor Tolkien into our hands today. It's, it's really beautifully done. And my kind of superficial analysis of this chapter does nothing, I think, to detract from its awesomeness. I really enjoy this chapter, reading it. There's just, in part, because, because we get so much storytelling from The Hobbits and we get so much attributed dialogue, there is a tendency, a temptation, even as we're studying this chapter, to question, well, how much of this is true? How much of this is is actually objectively true and how much of this is filtered through the subjective experience of Merry and Pippin? How much of this is just more hobbitish than we might expect it to be? Even the attributed dialogue that we get, because we don't ever slip through transparently into that story, because we don't, in effect, have a nested flashback here. There isn't a break in the narrative where Pippin says, well, let me tell you about the Battle of Isengard, and he puffs on his pipe and he looks off into the middle distance and we get a scene break, and then we get the horns came down from the hills in the dead of night, right? We don't get like a direct narrative account of this experience. We are left then to depend upon the words of the Hobbits, which is not, I think, I don't think that the Hobbits are unreliable narrators in this sense, except to the degree that Professor Tolkien would have preserved the Hobbit narrative voice and the Hobbit perspective on these things. So an objective narrative account of the Battle of Isengard would certainly read differently from the subjective Hobbitish account of the Battle of Isengard, I guess is what I'm saying. So we've kind of glossed the objective details here, and the subjective details are interesting in terms of Hobbit characterization, but because we have to get onto the Saruman conflict, that's where we've we've drawn the line. We We just can't study every single line of this book as much as it would please me to do so. Um... Let me catch back here in the uh, in the chat because you guys are uh, are uh, being uh, as verbal and as insightful and as brilliant as ever. Um let me see here. Um So if they do the Spartan thing asks Nemo anonymous and have the half orcs into pairs does that make a full orc and a full goblin? Hmm. Hmm, I'm not sure that I necessarily follow your argument there or your line of reasoning there. Let's kind of gloss what Saruman has done here, right? We get an account from Treebeard about this, and it is very subtle in in the pages of The Lord of the Rings. What has happened here at Isengard? Well, okay, there are orcs in the service of Sauron. There don't seem to be straight, you know, pure-blood orcs in the service of Saruman at this point. Rather, his orcs are Urukhai. These are orcs that have been blended with men. They have some of the stature of men. They have the resilience to the son of men. They are not simple orcs. Orcs and goblins, to, to reiterate a point that we made a few times here in the, these sessions of there and back again. Orcs and goblins absolutely the same thing, right? It's just goblin is a hobbitish word for that particular creature. Orc is an elvish word. Or I guess irk is an elvish word. So I guess orc is the Westron, the, the the common speech word for those creatures, right? But they are the same. There are orcs of Barador, there are orcs of the Misty Mountains, which are sometimes called goblins. Also the orcs of Barador are sometimes called goblins, and even the Orucai are sometimes called goblins, right? Or or the adjective, the adjectival form of goblin, is attached to things that belong to the orakai. We've seen that even in in fairly recent chapters. How does Saruman? Oh, Saruman, We should say also has men in his service, right? There are just men there to uh, mercenary men who who march with the orcs because of the promise of treasure, right? We we got that uh, that account from Aragorn last time. Um. So what has Saruman done? Well, I don't think that there's a breeding program per se, right? That's certainly one possible interpretation is just, well, there are some orcs and there are some humans and, well, we don't exactly let nature take its course. In fact, we do the opposite of that. We we force this breeding program. I don't necessarily think that that's what we're supposed to get from, uh, from Isengard here. I don't think it's anything as practical or as physical as that would suggest. I think instead that we've seen... An example of Saruman's magic, that he here is corrupting orcs with the essence of man, or if you prefer, corrupting man with the essence of orcs, that there is something more magical, something more mystical happening here in the great breeding pits of of Isengard. I also wouldn't necessarily take the movie version of this sequence to be canonical. I don't necessarily think, obviously we had to have some kind of physical, uh, physical visible representation of the orochai and the, as I say, the breeding pits of Isengard. But I don't necessarily think that that was what the professor had in mind when he was writing the sequence either. So it's, it's, it's complicated, of course, Throughout Tolkien's writing, we just don't know about orcs. As I've discussed before, we just don't know where orcs come from. We just don't know what orcs are. The professor changed his mind on this topic a handful of times in the course of his career and never pinned down a definitive version of their origin. So we don't know enough about orcs even to speculate what a a orc-human hybrid would... Or or how a orc-human hybrid would come into existence... We do, though, know what they are. We do know what the Orochai look like. We know how they behave. We know how they function. They are Orcs Plus, which is a terrifying thought. A terrifying thought. Okay, let's see as we catch up here. Um, talking a little about Gollum getting ahead of ourselves here. Um, oh, this is good. Rayla Lynn says, Maybe this scene comes from an interview with Marion Pippin's descendants, right? That is absolutely in, in accord with... Uh, with what we will get in, in terms of the, the documentary history of the Red Book. I don't think that it comes from their descendants, I'm sure that it comes from them directly, right? I'm sure that that yes, after the fact Frodo sat down with Merry and Pippin and said okay, so you got to tell me about the Battle of Isengard, and I'm sure that the account that we get here given to Aragorn and Legolas and Gimli is not the account that was given to them under the shadow of Orthanc at this time in the documentary history of this book, but was the version of the account that was given by Pippin and Merry to Frodo, presumably back in the Shire at the end of the book. Speaking of Back in the Shire, let's wrap up our discussion of chapter nine with what seems to be an incidental detail. "'We understand it all perfectly now,' said Gimli. "'All except one thing,' said Aragorn. "'Leaf from the south-farthing in Isengard. The more I consider it, the more curious I find it. I have never been in Isengard, but I have journeyed in this land, and I know well the empty countries that lie between Rohan and the Shire. Neither goods nor folk have passed that way for many a long year, not openly.' Saruman has secret dealings with someone in the Shire, I guess. Worm tongues may be found in other houses than King Theoden's. Was there a date on the barrels? "'Yes,' said Pippin. It was the 1417 crop. That is last year's—no, the year before, of course, now. A good year!' "'Oh, well, whatever evil was afoot is over now, I hope, or else it is beyond our reach at present,' said Aragorn. "'Yet I think I should mention it to Gandalf, small matter though it may seem among his great affairs.' I wonder what he's doing, said Mary. The afternoon is getting on. Let us go and look around. You can enter Isengard now at any rate, Strider, if you want to. But it is not a very cheerful sight. A connection here between Saruman and the Shire. Specifically, the taking of pipeweed from the South Farthing. Hobbit pipeweed from the South Farthing to Isengard. And as Aragorn says, yeah, there's nothing. There's nothing between Isengard, between non between the southern spur of the Misty Mountains, between Rohan... And the Shire, on the western side of the Misty Mountains, there's just a whole lot of nothing. I mean, there's Holland, I suppose, like like the, the old land of Holland that was once populated by the elves and where the elven magic still dwells to a certain extent. That's there. But that's it. There's no trade. There's no passage. There's no, you know, network of villages dotted across the landscape here where one might trade a, a cask of pipeweed here and there and thus it may come by honest mercantile impulse to Isengard. No, this indicates a direct connection between Saruman and the Shire. And of course, Aragorn doesn't know about it. Merry and Pippin don't know about it, but we know what is happening. Or at least we have a greater insight than they have into what is happening in the Shire. Remember Sam's vision in the Mirror of Galadriel? Remember when he sees the Shire and he sees it overcome by industry? He sees the the taking down of the trees of the Bywater Road? We're not done with the Shire yet. Aragorn here displaying some of that prophetic insight for which he is so well known. Oh, well, whatever evil is afoot is over now, I hope. Note how he couches that in. Hope not. I think so. Not. I, Aragorn, son of Arathorn, heir of Isildur, am declaiming that evil is over. That evil is vanquished and done. No, I hope it's over or else it is beyond our reach at present. It is certainly beyond your reach at present, but we will circle back around to that in due course. Yes. Um... Let me see here. Uh, Tribes of, dom- of nomadic Dunlendings, perhaps, says Father John. Um, again, just no, no commerce, right? There's no commerce. I mean, certainly there's no commerce with the Shire. Remember all the way back in um, Chapter 2 of, of The Fellowship of the Ring, Gandalf goes beyond the Shire's southern borders to gather news, and it's clear to us from context that he's going to the rangers, right? He's going to talk to, if not actually Aragorn, I guess, not actually Aragorn, but he's going south to talk to the rangers for news, And it's striking that he's going south, that he's going beyond the southern border of the Shire, because even in the context of of our understanding of the Shire at that point, we know there's nothing there from context clues. There's nothing there. That is just the white space on Frodo's walking map, right? The, The context for the Shire is provided entirely in terms of east and west, not north and south. The Shire may as well be isolated from from the northern expanse and the southern wastelands the southern plains below uh or, or north of Rohan south of the Shire i guess okay um lin says there is a road yes yes no there certainly is a road and and gandalf has taken that route and and you know others have traveled that route but there's no there's no commerce there's no community there's no civilization there even if saruman had had traded for this pipeweed, even if he had bought this pipeweed from the South Farthing, that indicates a direct connection between Isengard and the Shire, right? Even if it had come from, from nomadic tribes of Dunlandings, even if there had been men walking this, this, uh, this landscape and just trading kind of casually, then it still indicates a, a one-to-one point of connection between Saruman, between, between Orthanc and the Shire, I suppose. Yeah. Okay, let me see. Um... Oh, good! A uh, Tolkien lover in the chat is linking out to the Wikipedia page on orcs. Yeah, no, there are a couple of uh, a couple of established uh, explanations for orcs. It's not that there is no explanation; it's just that there are a handful of explanations, and those explanations are somewhat contradictory. And Professor Tolkien never gave us the definitive answer. So. Are orcs raised from the stone the way that the dwarves are? Possibly. Are they of the earth and the muck and the mire? Possibly. Are they corrupted elves? Well, maybe. Where do those elves come from? By whom were they corrupted? You know, there are a few different versions of that story too. Are they men originally who fell under the sway of of the shadow? Are they men who were corrupted over time? Were they some kind of of offshoot of whatever whatever kind of, of ancestry led us to the hobbits in the first place. Well, probably not that, at least, though maybe the Misty Mountains ones were. We just, we just don't know yet. There's just no definitive, uh, no definitive thing there. Good. Okay, let's get to uh, chapter 10, the voice of Saruman, and begin with uh, Gimli's desire to play a little spot the difference between Saruman and Gandalf.
1: "'Well, Treebeard and I have had some interesting discussions and made a
0: few plans,' he said, "'and we have all had some much-needed rest. Now we must be going on again. I hope you companions have all rested too and refreshed yourselves.' "'We have,' said Mary. But our discussions began and ended in smoke. Still we feel less ill-disposed towards Saruman than we did.' "'Do you
1: indeed?' said Gandalf. "'Well, I do not. I have now a last task to do before I go. I must pay Saruman a farewell visit.' "'Dangerous and probably useless, but it must be done. "'Those of you who wish may come with me, but beware and do not jest. "'This is not the time
0: for it.' "'I will come,' said Gimli. "'I wish to see him and learn if he really looks like you.'
1: "'And how will you learn that, Master Dwarf?' said Gandalf. "Saruman could look like me in your eyes if it suited his purpose with you. "'And are you yet wise enough to detect all his counterfeits?
0: "'Well, we shall see, perhaps.' He may be shy of showing himself before many different eyes together, but I have ordered all the ants to remove themselves from sight, so perhaps we shall persuade him to come out. What's the danger? asked Pippin. Will he shoot at us and pour fire out of the windows, or can he put a spell on us from a distance? The last is most likely if you ride to his door with a light heart,
1: said Gandalf, but there is no knowing what he can do or may choose to try. A wild beast cornered is not safe to approach, and Saruman has powers you do not guess. Beware of his voice.
0: Let's note first Mary's line here, but our discussions began and ended in smoke. Still, we feel less ill-disposed towards Saruman than we did. Little joke there from Mary. Our discussions began and ended in smoke. They began in something insubstantial. They ended in something insubstantial, but also they literally began and ended with smoking, with Pippin passing his extra spare pipe that he has carried with him for countless days now on to Gimli. And we feel less ill-disposed towards Saruman than we did because, uh, have you seen his pantry? It's pretty good. We ate and we drank and we smoked and it was awesome. So you know Saruman I guess not that bad a guy there's something hobbitish about him at least something minorly hobbitish about him at least he appreciates comfort and and good south farthing pipe Gandalf's having none of it Gandalf here is not in the mood for jokes and do not jest this is not the time for it do not jest there I am certain delivered with a sharp glance at Mary yeah yeah that's what you're doing not now This is not the time for for hobbitry. This is not the time for light-hearted jokes, which, of course, comes back there at the end. What's the danger? asked Pippin. Will he shoot at us and pour fire out of the windows, or can he put a spell on us from a distance? The last is most likely, if you ride to his door with a light heart. If you ride to his door with a light heart, he might put a spell on you. How does that work? What is Gandalf saying here? He's warning them. Beware his voice, right? But if you ride with a light heart, not in the sense that you are happy, I suppose completely in the sense that you are not taking this seriously in the sense that you are jesting and being jovial in the sense that if you ride to his door believing that this battle is won yes yes he might be able to put a spell on you that might well be what he does he'll certainly do that before he shoots at you or pours fire out of the windows he might well cast a spell on you, but his spell here is going to be of Saruman's order. It is going to be that Luth spell, you know, that, that bad news that we've discussed before. It's exactly the kind of spell that Wormtongue wrought over Theoden, and we can speculate about that based on this passage alone, but certainly that is what we are going to see from Saruman for the rest of the chapter. He is skilled with words. He is sly. He is able to turn words to his service, to his darkest purpose. And we see here, too, Gimli's opposition. I will come. I wish to see him and learn if he really looks like you. And how will you learn that, Master Dwarf? Said Gandalf. Saruman could look like me in your eyes if it suited his purpose with you. And are you yet wise enough to detect all his counterfeits? Well, we shall see, perhaps. Maybe. Maybe, actually, Gimli, you are. Maybe, actually, you are. I have a kinship with you, Gimli. Remember how Gandalf and Gimli bond as they're moving through Moria? Theirs is perhaps the... Closest new relationship in the fellowship, you know, at that point at least. This is not, or this ought not to be read. Hmm, certainly Peter Jackson read this and read many of the interactions with Gimli as being somewhat critical, somewhat sarcastic, somewhat snide, so Gimli is played as comedy dwarf. He is comic relief throughout the movie adaptations of the story, but that I don't think is entirely justified, entirely supported by the text here. Saruman is incalculably powerful. He is extraordinarily powerful. Even Gandalf here acknowledges it. Dangerous and probably useless, but it must be done. This probably isn't going to work. And yes, it is dangerous, even to me, even to Gandalf the White. This is going to be a dangerous thing, going to the gates of Orthanc itself and and and, and parleying with, with Saruman. This is not smart, even, but it must be done. That obligation is on him. It's not the smart thing to do. It's not the pragmatic thing to do, but it is the right thing to do. And please pay attention to that distinction. It is the necessary thing to do. This is... Of critical importance. And I think we might circle back around to talk about this a little next week when we talk about the shape of Book Three in general. Because Book Three is defined in part by characters doing things which do not appear to be pragmatic, do not appear to be sensible. They do things which are right, but which are also kind of nuts. Remember Aragorn, you know, wailing at Parth Gallen, fearing that all of his decisions have gone awry, and then deciding in that moment, okay, I'm not going to go after Frodo and Sam, I'm going to go after Merry and Pippin, that's the right thing to do, for they are of our company, and they are in the hands of the orcs, and that's the right thing to do. My dude, my dude Aragorn, Frodo literally is carrying the One Ring to Mordor. Like, that is more important than, let me check, literally everything. But Aragorn sets aside the pragmatic course, the practical course, for the the right course, for the just course. He is, in that moment, living up to his best potential there. And Gandalf here is doing something very similar. It's super dangerous to go and talk to Saruman. Saruman, prince of lies. Saruman, who can twist and pervert his words to, to make you think anything. Saruman, who literally, you know, has just... Uh, the, the, the spell that he cast by proxy on Theoden King, has just been removed, right? Not a spell of magic entirely, but a spell of hopelessness. This is dangerous. This is a really dangerous thing to do, but Gandalf is going to do it anyway. And so, uh, let me see here. It's like Tolkien building the reader's anticipation through the dialogue as well, says Jackie. Yeah, we've been building toward this confrontation for quite a while. We talked about this pretty extensively in last week's session. There's a lot of foundation being laid for this climactic confrontation between Gandalf and Saruman here. Yes. Good. Good. Um, Oh, we're talking about uh, Christopher Lee here in the chat. Good Lord, Christopher Lee is so good. He's so, so good. Um, I'm scrolling back to find Shane's original comment to credit Shane properly here for what he said. Uh, Or does Saruman look like Count Dooku, Shane says? (laughs) Yes, less like Gandalf, it turns out, and more like, you know, Dracula, I suppose. Um, uh, Christopher Lee was an extraordinary talent. I very much like what Christopher Lee did with Saruman. But that is not Book Saruman, right? We shouldn't be thinking about Christopher Lee when we're reading Book Saruman because Book Saruman is all soft words and sweet aspect and an appearance of affability and reasonableness, right? He's he's charming and urbane, except when he's not, except when that facade slips suddenly and brutally as it does in the course of this chapter. But he is charming. He is winning. He is charismatic in a way that I think Christopher Lee was not. His Saruman was very, very different. His Saruman was much darker, much more stern, which of course creates a huge problem when we get to the Hobbit trilogy, and Christopher uh, Christopher Lee is still giving that Saruman performance, even when Saruman is supposed to be the leader of the White Council and is supposed to be, you know, the most revered of the wizards, even when Gandalf and Galadriel are supposed to be kind of, at least under the authority of, willingly under the authority of Saruman, and uh, potentially at least a little in awe of Saruman, but instead they're snidely passing notes in, in class during the meeting of the White Council because, oh, that Saruman. He does go on. There was no choice but to do that in the movie because of the performance that Christopher Lee had already given. We couldn't turn that back around. It would have felt really weird at that point. So we stick with our original characterization and we end up with a weird discordance at the heart of the Hobbit trilogy, which, hey, that's maybe the story of the entire Hobbit trilogy. Okay, let's get into our discussion here of Saruman. Let's get to our first reveal, in fact, as Gimli discovers what Saruman looks like. At the foot of the stairs, Gandalf and the king dismounted. ''I will go up,'' said Gandalf. ''I have been in Orthanc, and I know my peril.'' ''And I too will go up,'' said the king. ''I am old and fear no peril any more. I wish to speak with the enemy who has done me so much wrong. Eomer shall come with me and see that my aged feet do not falter.''
1: ''As you will,'' said Gandalf. ''Aragorn shall come with me. Let the others await at the foot of the stairs. They will hear and see enough, if there is anything to hear or see.'' "'Nay!'
0: said Gimli. "Legolas and I wish for a closer view. "'We alone here represent our kindreds. "'We also will come behind.' "'Come then,' said Gandalf. "'And with that he climbed the steps and Theoden went beside him. "'The riders of Rohan sat uneasily upon their horses on either side of the stair "'and looked up darkly at the great tower, fearing what might befall their lord. "'Mary and Pippin sat on the bottom step, feeling both unimportant and unsafe. "'Half a mile from here to the gate,' muttered Pippin. "'I wish I could slip off back to the guardroom unnoticed. "'What did we come for? "'We are not wanted.' Gandalf stood before the door of Orthanc and beat on it with his staff. It rang with a hollow sound. "'Saruman! Saruman!' he cried in a loud, commanding voice. "'Saruman! Come forth!' I guess this is not the reveal, actually. I, I'm skipping ahead of my notes here. This is not the reveal of Saruman. We'll get that on the next slide. This is instead the, the coming to the foot of Orthanc, coming to the very gate of Orthanc itself. And we see here why everyone is present. Gandalf is here because he has to be, as indicated in the previous slide. Theoden is here because he has no fear of Saruman specifically, and also because he is old, fears no peril despite the fact that, you know, he's also bringing with him his heir, the only man remaining of his house up to the foot of Orthanc. Like, if Saruman gets it into his head to to pour fire out of the windows, then they're standing in a pretty bad spot, it turns out. But Aomer should, of course, be there as the heir to the Rohirrim at this point. Gimli and Legolas coming. We alone here represent our kindreds. You'll note that that is not a compelling argument for Merry and Pippin, right? Merry and Pippin also here alone represent their kindreds. Arguably one of the ants here alone representing their kindred, right? But the ants have been sent from view because Saruman is more fearful of the ants than he is of anyone gathered here below the gate of Orthanc. Um, uh, JY in the Crowdcast chat says, "'The Tolkien Estate hasn't released the rights "'for the Blue Wizard, have they?' Um, no, not really, okay? The situation is this. The rights for The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings have been released. Those rights exist, right? Th- those rights were given to New Line for the adaptations. They were actually uh, sold off during Tolkien's uh, lifetime. He actually sold them off, which is why we got the you know, Rankin-Bass animated and why we've had dramatized audio versions and so on and so forth. So there are production rights attached to specifically the text of The Hobbit and the text of The Lord of the Rings. Now, the trick with The Lord of the Rings is that The Lord of the Rings has appendices, and some of those appendices carry with them material that is anchored in the Silmarillion, but is not explicitly the Silmarillion. So the Blue Wizards are name-checked in The Lord of the Rings and in the appendices, so we can refer to them, but there are no existing stories of the Blue Wizards that we can draw forth from, and we can't use any of the Silmarillion content for current adaptations. And we still haven't licensed the Silmarillion. The Silmarillion has not been licensed to Amazon. This is not what we're going to get from whatever the Amazon TV prequel series is going to be the rights to the Silmarillion will ultimately be licensed. There is no sense. Hmm, okay, I... I feel myself here in direct uh, disagreement with Christopher Tolkien, which is a place that I basically never want to be. Christopher Tolkien has not licensed, as executor of the Tolkien estate, he has not, and the creative director of the Tolkien estate until very recently, he has not licensed the Summer He has chosen not to license that material because he didn't want people adapting his father's work. He didn't feel confident that anyone would adapt that work. Christopher Tolkien, critical of every adaptation of The Lord of the Rings. He has not cared for any of the adaptations of his father's work. He has been outright critical of them, but he had no control over that. The material that he had control over was going going to stay with the Tolkien estate. Christopher Tolkien is 93 years old. Christopher Tolkien has stepped back as head of the Tolkien estate, though he is still, I think, the executor, I forget the actual legal title, but he is still the executor of the, the literary estate, so he can still decide that this material is not going to be sold off, but he's 93 years old. So within the next decade, it seems very likely that the rights to the Silmarillion will be sold off, and all of those stories can be told. Will we at some point get a Baron and Luthien movie? Possibly, yes. Will we get a, a you know, uh, an origin of the Silmarils movie? It's entirely possible. Yes. Um, I'm not sure. I'm not sure that that's going to happen. It is more likely that that material is going to be sold off so that it can, it can inform a deeper approach to Middle Earth, which is really interesting. But yeah, that, right now that's where the legal standing is. Um, let me catch up here. Uh, yeah. Oh, oh, we're talking about, uh, yeah, Father John is giving us a little biographical detail here. Christopher was an intelligence officer in World War II. Christopher Tolkien is a great man, I do not want in any way to, uh, to, to undercut Christopher Tolkien's contribution to the world in general, whether it was working as an intelligence officer or it was serving with the Royal Air Force in South Africa in the early days of the Second World War, or it was his enormous academic and literary contribution to the world, right? The work that he has done on his father's literary legacy is genuinely extraordinary. I cannot think of, of, Anyone else who has undertaken the kind of work that Christopher Tolkien has undertaken done it so carefully, so assiduously, so Beautifully, The fact that we have this 12-volume series of the history of Middle-earth, the fact that we have the Baron and Luthien book, we have the Children of Hurin book, you know, the fact that he, we had the Lost Tales to begin with, all, the fact that we got the Silmarillion in part, all of this is thanks to Christopher Tolkien. If we are fans of J.R.R. Tolkien, as I'm sure we all are fairly confident saying at this point in there and back again, here we are almost an hour into our discussion tonight, that we're probably all fans of J.R.R. Tolkien. We must, by necessity, be fans of the work of Christopher Tolkien too, because so much of, of Tolkien work survives to us today only because of the the brilliant and insightful academic work performed by his son so christopher tolkien is a very great man for a number of reasons not least of all for his contribution to our understanding of J.R.R. tolkien's literary legacy there um good okay let's keep going we're talking about the uh the 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 singing we're talking about voices here i need to track back to find the beginning here but i just don't know where i could do that uh Go, yes, uh, Father Don is telling me that dwarves are bases and hobbits are tenors, which I actually really, really like. Uh, Legolas is a countertenor would be great, says Sarah. Yes, I can see that too. <laughs> this is all very good, you guys. I have no idea where this, uh, where this uh, conversation is going, but this is a beautiful thing. Okay, let's get into our uh, into our actual reveal of Saruman then. Now that I've, I've teased it enough, let's get to it. They looked up astonished, for they had heard no sound of his coming. And they saw a figure standing at the rail looking down upon them. An old man swathed in a great cloak, the colour of which was not easy to tell, for it changed if they moved their eyes or if he stirred. His face was long, with a high forehead, and he had deep, darkling eyes hard to fathom, though the look that they now bore was grave and benevolent and a little weary. His hair and beard were white, but strands of black still showed about his lips and ears. Like and yet unlike, muttered Gimli. But come now, said the soft voice. Two of you I know by name. Gandalf I know too well to
1: have much hope that he seeks help or counsel here. "'But you, Theoden, lord of the Mark of Rohan, are declared by your noble devices, "'and still more
0: by the fair countenance of the House of Errol. "'O worthy son of Thangle the Thrice-renowned, why have you not come before, and as a friend?' Much have I desired to see you, mightiest king of western lands, and especially in these latter years to save you from the unwise and evil counsels that beset you. Is it yet too late? Despite the injuries that have been done to me, in which the men of Rohan, alas, have had some part, still I would save you and deliver you from the ruin that draws nigh inevitably if you ride upon this road which you have taken. Indeed, I alone can aid you now. Theoden opened his mouth as if to speak, but he said nothing. He looked up at the face of Saruman with its dark, solemn eyes bent down upon him and then to Gandalf at his side, and he seemed to hesitate. Gandalf made no sign, but stood silent as stone, as one waiting patiently for some call that has not yet come. The riders stirred at first, murmuring with approval of the words of Saruman, and then they too were silent as men spellbound. It seemed to them that Gandalf had never spoken so fair and fittingly to their lord. Rough and proud now seemed all his dealings with Théoden, and over their hearts crept a shadow, the fear of a great danger, the end of the mark in a darkness to which Gandalf was driving them, while Saruman stood beside a door of escape, holding it half open so that a ray of light came through. There was a heavy silence. It was Gimli the dwarf who broke in suddenly. The words of this wizard stand on their heads, he growled, gripping the handle of his axe. In the language of Orthanc, help means ruin, and saving means slaying. That is plain, though we do not come here to beg. Gimli calling it as he sees it, of course. Here we see the magic of Saruman. It is not just the word. It is not just the case that Saruman is persuasive. It is not just the case that he is skilled with words, but the words are the medium here by which he works his sorcery. There is clearly an influence. Theoden opened his mouth as if to speak, but he said nothing. He looked up at the face of Saruman with its dark solemn eyes bent down upon him, and then to Gandalf at his side, and he seemed to hesitate. He is, in a sense, caught between two impulses here. He's not, I think, caught directly between Gandalf and Saruman, but he is caught between what they represent. What is Saruman preaching to Theoden King here? Fear. Fear. Despite the injuries you have done to me, in which the men of Rohan alas have played some part, still I would save you and deliver you from the ruin that draws nigh inevitably if you ride upon this road which you have taken. Gandalf did not counsel Theoden with hope, exactly. He didn't say... It's all going to be okay. You just have to ride out with me to the Fords of Aizen and we're going to be fine. We'll, we'll go, we'll spank Saruman and his and we'll be home before tea. It'll be fine. Don't worry about it. No, that is specifically not what Gandalf said to Theoden. He said, if we lose this, we're sunk. We're done. It's over. But if we win this, then we get to go on to the next fight and the next fight after that and the next fight after that. And ultimately, it may still be hopeless, but we're going to keep fighting. It is not as dark as it seemed, but here is Saruman. Looking out with these eyes, these dark, solemn eyes, casting once more the lath spell, giving once more the bad news, taking from Theoden the hope that Gandalf restored to him? Well, I don't think it's necessarily true to say that Gandalf restored the hope to to Theoden in as much as the hope was real, right? Gandalf restored to Theoden perspective, context, truth, He opened up the doors. he let in the light to the golden hall. And Theoden says, it is not as dark as it was before. And he takes up his sword. He says, yeah, my arms have not yet forgotten the use of this sword. He remembers who he is. He is restored to truth. That is Gandalf's great power. And in the restoration of truth, of course, because this is a world that is fundamentally at some level, if not just, if not good, then at least hopeful, then hope comes with the restoration of truth. But Saruman here is weaving his spell, and we can see exactly what Gandalf meant. If you come here with light hearts, if you come here unprepared for his sorcery, unprepared for his power, if you come here unskeptical of his words, if you come here with trust in your heart for Saruman, then yeah, he is going to cast a spell on you. He is going to twist you to his dark purpose, as the men of Rohan here are beginning to turn. Gandalf has never spoken so fair and fittingly to their lord. He's never spoken so gently or kindly. He has certainly, sure as hell, never flattered Theoden the way that Saruman is flattering him. But why would he? Flattery is deceit. He honors Theoden, right? He honors Theoden, king of the of, of the mark, but he doesn't flatter him. He doesn't lie to him or deceive him. Let me see. Um, uh, Oh, right. Yes. uh, Rayla Lin is saying, why would Gandalf come to you for counsel? You locked him up last time he did. So there's that. Uh, Yes. I mean, we'll get to the actual discussion with Gandalf in just a moment. But at this point, too, Saruman is, of course, calling out to the men of Rohan. He's calling out to Theoden, and he's not really addressing. Gandalf I know too well to have much hope that he seeks help or counsel here. Gandalf. Am I right? Jeez, this guy, he comes in with the bad news. He comes in all stern. He never says a good word to anyone. He calls you fool of a took and then just blows off on your favorite horse. Like, that's just a thing that he does. That's Gandalf all over. That's Gandalf 101 right there. This guy, he's not speaking to Gandalf. He's speaking to Theoden. He's going to speak to Gandalf and when he does, of course, he's going to modulate his approach because Saruman is sly. Theoden, though, has a response. "'We will
1: have peace,'
0: said Theoden at last, thickly and with an effort. Several of the writers cried out gladly. Theoden held up his hand. "'Yes, we will have peace,' he said now in a clear voice. "'We will have peace when you and all your works have perished, "'and the works of your dark master to whom you would deliver us. "'You are a liar, Saruman, and a corrupter of men's hearts. "'You hold out your hand to me, and I perceive only a finger of the claw of Mordor, cruel and cold.' Even if your war on me was just, and it was not, for you were ten ta- for were you ten times as wise, you would have no right to rule me and mine for your own profit as you desired. Even so, what will you say of your torches in Westfold and of the children that lie dead there? And they hewed Hama's body before the gates of the Hornburg after he was dead? When you hang from a gibbet at your window for the sport of your own crows, I will have peace with you and Orthanc. So much for the house of Aeorl. A lesser son of great sires am I, but I do not need to lick your fingers. Turn, elsewhither. But I fear your voice has lost its charm. The riders gazed up at Theoden like men startled out of a dream. Harsh as an old raven's, their master's voice sounded in their ears after the music of Saruman. But Saruman, for a while, was beside himself with wrath. He leaned over the rail as if he would smite the king with his staff. To some, suddenly it seemed that they saw a snake coiling itself to strike. Theoden shakes it off. Théoden is not falling under the spell of Saruman. Or rather, to be more precise, Théoden is falling under the spell of Saruman, but he does not fall under the spell of Saruman. He is, for a moment, conflicted. He glances at Gandalf. The men of Rohan stir behind him. Hey, wait, what? Saruman is speaking wise counsel. Saruman is offering aid and assistance. Saruman is going to forgive us for raising swords against him and his this is great. Let's have peace. We've all fought and been bloodied and many of us have died. Let's have peace. But Theoden shakes it off. We will have peace, said Theoden at last thickly and with an effort. Here he is restoring himself. Several of the writers uh, cried out gladly, but Theoden held up his hand. Yes, we will have peace, he said now in a clear voice. That moment of rejection is all that it takes. He sees Saruman clearly. He forces himself to act. And of course, this is very much like the influence of the ring or the influence of the Palantir or the influence of the Arkenstone. The influence of Saruman is a fell influence in the tradition of fell influences in Tolkien's work. I'm calling out the Palantir there because I'm assuming all of you know what happens in next week's chapter, but we'll get to that in due course, of course. So this is his rejection here. You hold out your hand to me and I perceive only a finger of the claw of Mordor, cruel and cold, even if your war on me was just. As it was not, for were you ten times as wise, you would have no right to rule me and mine for your own profit as you desired. Okay, even if you were ten times wiser than you are, Saruman, you still would have no right to rule the men of Rohan. This is not uh, meritocracy, right? Even if you were the wisest, even if you were truly benevolent, you would still have no right to rule my men. They are mine. The men of the mark stand behind me, not you even by proxy, even through your influence or the influence of Grima Wormtongue, even through the lies and the the treachery that you have spread? No. The men of the Mark do not serve you. You have no claim on their hearts and on their loyalty. Even so... What will you say of the torches in Westfold and the children that lie dead there? And they hewed Hama's body before the gates of the Hornburg after he was dead. And they hewed there that continuing thought from Theoden. I think we can feel his rising passion here. And they hewed Hama's body. Hama, the the door warden of the Golden Hall uh, back in Edoras, of course. Later we learn, also captain of the king's personal guard. Like, a great and humble man was Hama. And he was hewed by the forces of uh, of Saruman even after he was dead. When you hang from a gibbet at your window for the sport of your own crows, I will have peace with you and Orthanc. And then he turns. So much for the house of Eorl. A lesser son of great sires am I. Yeah. I'm not the greatest king of the West. I'm not the, the noblest descendant of Eorl. I am just a guy, and I'm old, and I'm tired, and I've made horrible mistakes. I fell under your spell once. I have misled my people. Is the battle at Helm's Deep kind of a little bit my fault? Yes, it's kind of a little bit my fault. The death of my son is kind of a little bit my fault, because I fell under your spell. I was weak. I'm the lesser son of great sires, but even I do not need to lick your fingers. Uh grossly intimate kind of of metaphor for subservience there, right? Equating himself with with a faithful hound here. No, I'm not going to lick your fingers. Turn elsewither. But I fear your voice has lost its charm. It's not just that the voice of Saruman, you know, this powerful voice for which this chapter is titled. It's not just that the voice of the Saruman has no power over Theoden now. He's beginning to suspect that actually now the truth has been revealed, Saruman's voice in general is going to be less powerful. Let me catch up with the chat. Uh, yes, it's interesting to hear Theoden compare Saruman's hand to a finger of the claw of Mordor. Says Jackie. Um, and I lost that quote because it scrolled. Here we go. As if he's reminding Saruman that he's nothing but a piece on the chessboard, though still evil, right? And at this point, again, we get this 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 interesting bit of texture here, right? It is fair to say that to Theoden, Saruman is a finger on the claw of Mordor, right? He is just a representative. He he refers—your dark master, right? He's referring to this connection, this, this fealty, this loyalty between Saruman and Sauron, where Aragorn was just skeptical of exactly that fealty, exactly that loyalty. And Gandalf, too, has been skeptical of that are they in, is Saruman in service to Sauron or is he challenging Sauron? Is he, I guess there are more like more subtle degrees of treachery here, right? Is he genuinely in service? Is he feigning service? Is he kind of uh, a neutral, a neutrally inclined ally of Sauron? Is he an outright rival to Sauron? Any or all of these things may be true, but none of it matters. Because Theoden is feeling the shadow, and he's seeing Saruman as the the emissary of that shadow, I guess. Ray Lalin says, why do you think Theoden is so resistant to Saruman's Overtures? I think that he is resistant now because the dark does not come on all at once. I think that though it is fragile in a sense, hope is also very, very powerful. The light is very, very powerful powerful, and it cannot be eclipsed by a sudden coming of the shadow. If the shadow descends all at once, right? If you are, as Theoden is, prideful and and hopeful again, if it is not as dark as he believed, right? He has taken up his sword. He has ridden to war. He has defended the Hornburg. He has eradicated the the Uruk-hai, He has led his men. He is standing there right next to Eomer, Right At his side is, is the great hope for the future of the mark, his heir. He is standing here in front of his men, And he is feeling powerful in this moment. And if the shadow comes on all at once, if the dark tries to fall immediately, if it cloaks you all at once, then you recognize the transition, right? What happened to Theoden back in the hall of Edoras, back in the golden hall of Methaself, is... You know, the, the, the metaphor of the boiling frog, right? If you put the frog in hot water, the frog recognizes that the water is hot and jumps right out. If you put the frog in cold water and then heat the water, the frog never realizes that the water has become hot, and so the frog boils. That is what happened to Theoden. We know that Grima Wormtongue has been practicing his, his fell influence, has been, has been whispering these dark forebodings into Theoden's ear for a long while before we get to his sudden uh, restoration. And even the simplicity of that restoration shows the power of the light, right? The dark cannot eclipse the light. It just can't. The dark can only win when light is corrupted, when light is extinguished, when light itself gives up, when hope is lost. But hope is, though it is fragile in the sense that it is very important and can be broken, it is not... It is not thin. It is not insubstantial. It is a powerful force. So I, I just think that right now, it would take months of of this, months of this dark whispering to turn Theoden again, to rob him again of his hope. Saruman is incredibly skilled, and Theoden is tempted, but I don't think that you can overcome the light as simply as that. That's certainly my reading. Anyway, perhaps you guys disagree. Let's see. Um, Yes, yes, uh, Jared says he stands up to this wizard who has just offered him all kinds of stupid flattery. He's completely free of the spell. Again, yes, he has his moment of temptation, right? We we must recognize that Theoden King is tempted. And this is one of the things that Gandalf is talking about when he says, yeah, this is dangerous, probably hopeless, definitely dangerous. One of the things is, Theoden might just turn. The man of Rohan might just turn. Terrible things could happen here. Like, like things could go real bad at the foot of Orthanc here, but they don't. Gandalf has faith in, in Theoden. And you'll note that Gandalf does not take action, right? Ga- this is not a war for Theoden's soul between Gandalf and Saruman. That's, that's, not, that's explicitly not what is happening here. Gandalf is taking no action. He's waiting for his cue. He's waiting for his chance to speak. He knows that it's going to come. He believes in Theoden. Clearly, that's why he's standing right next to him. Though, Hmm, is it possible that that's one of the reasons that he brought Aragorn up with him? Why does he summon Aragorn? He's not going to, right? He says, I'm going to go up. Everyone else should stay back. This is too dangerous. Théoden's like, no, I'm going up and I'm bringing Aragorn with me. And Gandalf's like, right, I'll bring Aragorn with me then. That's going to be fine. But that's it. And then Gimli and Legolas will come up too. Okay, fine, fine, whatever. Okay. There's an interesting conflict that's happening here, but it is not a simple conflict between Gandalf and Saruman. It's not a simple conflict between the light and the dark. Okay. Uh, also says Sarah, elsewither, great word. Isn't that fantastic? Really classic old English word there. I love that a lot. Good. Uh, Seastar says, yeah, what does it mean to speak thickly? I generally describe that of, of describing someone with a stuffy nose. Um... I would take that uh, thickly and with an effort, right? As though the, the throat is choked, as though these words are being forced out past something. We will have peace, said Theoden, at last, thickly and with an effort. He's He's pushing these words out past an obstruction, kind of defying his own inclination in that moment. But then once he says them, He's restored. Theoden held up a hand. Yes, we will have peace, he said, now in a clear voice. Not his voice clearing, not with a clearer voice. You know, there's no kind of degree of equivocation here. Yes, we will have peace, he said, now in a clear voice. He holds up his hand to silence his riders. The saying of the thing is enough. He gets that that moment of restoration. He has to defy Saruman as Frodo defies the ring or, you know, as, as we defy fel influence, as we defy the shadow. But once he's done it, the spell is broken. It's not as dark as I as I thought. It's not as dark as it seemed. Suddenly, light is returned to him again. Okay, um, let's let's catch up. Okay, we're good. Let's keep moving onward here. Um, let's get to uh, to Gandalf, of course. Now we're now that we've dealt with Theoden King, this is this is um, this is I think the largest, longest slide that I've ever pulled for there and back again. But we kind of have to have all of it because this is it. This is the conflict. But you. Gandalf, for you at least I am grieved, feeling for your shame. How comes it that you can endure such company, for you are proud, Gandalf, and not that reason, having a noble mind and eyes that look both deep and far. Even now, will you not listen to my counsel? Gandalf stirred and looked up. Uh, I just realized that I copied this line twice, which is probably one of the reasons that this slide is as long as it is.
1: Gandalf stirred and looked up. What have you to say that you did not say to our last meeting? he asked. Or oh, perhaps you have things to unsay. Saruman paused. Unsay,
0: he mused as if puzzled. Unsay. I endeavored to advise you for your own good, but you scarcely listened. You are proud and do not love advice, having indeed a store of your own wisdom. But on that occasion you erred, I think, misconstruing my intentions willfully. I fear that in my eagerness to persuade you I lost patience. And indeed I regret it, for I bore you no ill will, and even now I bear none, though you return to me in the company of the violent and the ignorant. How should I? Are we not both members of a high and ancient order, most excellent in Middle-earth? Our friendship would profit us both alike. Much we could still accomplish together, to heal the disorders of the world. Let us understand one another, and dismiss from thought these lesser folk. Let them wait on our decisions. For the common good I am willing to redress the past and to receive you. Will you not consult with me? Will you not come up? So great was the power that Saruman exerted in this last effort that none that stood within hearing were unmoved. But now the spell was wholly different. They heard the gentle remonstrance of a kindly king with an erring but much-loved minister. But they were shut out, listening at a door to words not meant for them. Ill-mannered children or stupid servants overhearing the elusive discourse of their elders and wondering how it would affect their lot. Of loftier mold, these two were made reverend and wise. It was inevitable that they should make alliance. Gandalf would ascend into the tower to discuss deep things beyond their comprehension in the high chambers of Orthanc. The door would be closed and they would be left outside, dismissed to await allotted work or punishment. Even in the mind of Théoden, the thought took shape like a shadow of doubt. He will betray us. He will go. We shall be lost." Then Gandalf laughed. The fantasy vanished like a puff of smoke.
1: "'Saruman! Saruman!' said Gandalf, still laughing. "'Saruman, you missed your path in life. You should have been the king's jester, and earned your bread and stripes too by mimicking his counsellors. "'Ah, me!' he paused, getting the better of his mirth. "'Understand one another. I fear I am beyond your comprehension.' "'But you, Saruman, I understand now too well. "'I keep a clearer memory of your arguments and deeds than you suppose. "'When last I visited you, you were the jailer of Mordor, and there I was to be sent. "'Nay, the guest who has escaped from the roof will think twice before he comes back in by the door. "'Nay, I do not think I will come up. "'But listen, Saruman, for the last time, will you not come down?' Isengard has proved less strong than your hope and fancy made it. So may other things in which you still have trust. Would it not be well to leave it for a while, to turn to new things, perhaps? Think well, Saruman. Will you not come down? This is absolutely one of my favorite passages in the
0: entire book. I love the opposition here. I love the, the precision with which Saruman deploys this last assault upon Gandalf, this last great hope here. And I love the casual dismissal that Gandalf makes him, the joke that Gandalf sees in all of this. How comes it that you can endure such company for you are proud, Gandalf, and not without reason, having a noble mind and eyes that look both deep and far, even now, will you not listen to my counsel? Gandalf, don't be unreasonable. I know that you're wise. I know that you are so wise, in fact, that frankly, I question the company that you keep these days. The king of the Rohirrim and his heir and Aragorn, please. Gandalf, you are wise. You have eyes that see both deep and far. Even now, will you not listen to my counsel? Can we not talk, Gandalf? Please, let's send these children away and you and I, let's let the adults talk this over, shall we? And Gandalf stirs and looks up, right? That stirring is so powerful. He's been completely passive through the confrontation with Theoden. He's been completely removed from, from this conflict because he himself did not, I'm sure, wish to interpose himself into the conflict. He can't fight this battle for Theoden. Theoden has to fight the battle himself. And so he does. So Gandalf stirs for the first time. Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> Didn't see you there, Saruman. You were, you were talking to me that whole time. What have you to say that you did not say at our last meeting, or perhaps you have things to unsay? Gandalf here giving him a chance. Gandalf here continuing to give him a chance. And then we get Saruman's pitch. I endeavored to advise you for your own good, but you scarcely listened. You are proud and do not love advice, having indeed a store of your own wisdom. No, look, I get it. You're proud, as you should be. You're smart, Gandalf. You are wise. I understand that. Okay, so I was so eager that I overstated my case. And perhaps, yes, I lost patience. I lost my temper. Indeed, I regret it. I didn't bear you any ill will. I don't bear you any ill will now. You and me were members of a high and ancient order, most excellent in Middle-earth. Brackets for the modern reader, most excellent there. This is not Bill and Ted hyperbole. Most excellent. This is the superlative form. We are the most important people in Middle-earth. Our order is the most excellent, the most perfect, the most virtuous in Middle-earth. Our friendship would profit us both alike. Much we could still accomplish together to heal the disorders of the world. Don't you want to heal this disordered world, Gandalf? Can't you see the pain and the suffering that is happening here? Let us understand one another and dismiss from thought these lesser folk. Look, who else can heal the world but us? We can work together. We can take counsel together. We can figure this whole thing out. You're actually kind of obliged to do that, Gandalf. As a member of this most excellent order of Middle Earth, you're kind of obliged to do what only you can do, only we can do in your pride and in your wisdom, Gandalf. Won't you listen to me? I'm being completely reasonable here. Let them wait on our decisions. They can't help us. For the common good, I am willing to redress the past and to receive you. Will you not consult with me? Will you not come up? And the coming up here... Not just indicative, of course, of of moving into Orthanc, of of coming into Saruman's private chambers here and leaving behind his his companions here. It is so much more metaphorically powerful than that. Will you not, Gandalf? forget these people, these motley ragtag crew that you've assembled around you. Will you not just forget them and ascend? Will you not literally ascend, Gandalf, to your proper place? Here I am, atop Orthunk, looking out at the, the Vista of Isengard, which, by the way, you really kind of messed up, but hey, I'll redress the past. I'm willing to consult with you here. I'm willing to offer my counsel here. I am literally above such petty concerns, and you should be too. Will you not come up So great was the power that Saruman exerted in this last effort, that none that stood within hearing were unmoved. But now the spell was wholly different. Now look, we're not paying attention to Gandalf's response here. We're moving out from Gandalf to everyone else who was assembled, specifically even Theoden. And why should Theoden be the specific example that we go to here? Because Theoden's the king. Theoden, like Saruman, exists above these people. But even Theoden is made to feel abashed, is made to feel... Ignorant, ill-mannered children or stupid servants overhearing the elusive discourse of their elders and wondering how it would affect their lot. Not just that they are ill-mannered and stupid, right? Not just that they are, not just that they are less wise than Gandalf and Saruman. They actually are much less wise than Gandalf and Saruman. Everyone here assembled is less wise, in a sense, than Gandalf and Saruman. But look at how they're actually categorized: ill-mannered children or stupid servants. They're not entitled to a seat at this table. They're not entitled to take part in the elusive discourse of their elders. They're not equipped to, certainly, but they're also not entitled to. They are lesser in the most fundamental way that it is possible to be lesser. The door would be closed. They would be left outside, dismissed to await allotted work or punishment. Even in the mind of Theoden, the thought took shape like a shadow of doubt. He will betray us. He will go. We shall be lost. Not, hey, wait a minute. Not, I must speak in the defense of Gandalf. Not, I must physically interpose myself between Gandalf and the door. He can't even conceive of such a thing. He's an ill-mannered child. He's a stupid servant. He can't interpose himself between Gandalf and Saruman. He just doesn't have that ability. That's not who he is. The worst that he can conceive of at this point, he'll betray us. He will go. We'll be lost. Oh, this is it. This is the dark moment, you guys. It's all come down to this, and now Gandalf's going to choose Saruman? Damn. Damn. Then Gandalf laughed. The fantasy vanished like a puff of smoke. This is exactly the same beat as Theoden forcing out that there will be peace, right, and then raising his hand. The breaking of the spell. The fantasy vanished like a puff of smoke. The spell is broken. Saruman, Saruman, said Gandalf, still laughing. Saruman, you missed your path in life. You should have been the king's jester and earned your bread and stripes too by mimicking his counsellors. See what Gandalf's doing here? He's not just making a joke, he's not just making light of this. You know, here is Saruman in his in his full measure, right? This this wise and and uh, and just counselor who has been who has suffered the, these grim injustices, right? He has War has come to the very foot of his tower, not through his making, through the, the, the terrible guidance that's been given to Theoden and the Rohirrim and the Aragorn and who knows, this, this ragtag rabble down at the foot of his tower. He has suffered terribly throughout this entire experience, but he's still willing to put it past him. He's still willing to, to move past it and instead heal the, the disorders of the world. And Gandalf laughs, which breaks the spell, and also, crucially, reduces Saruman to that level, right? To children and servants. So here, Saruman is reduced even past children and servants to the jester, an object of ridicule himself, a person of absolutely you know, diminished rank, but also an object of mockery and ridicule. Understand one another? I fear I am beyond your comprehension, but you, Saruman, I understand now too well. I keep a clearer memory of your arguments and deeds than you suppose. Um, Nice try, dude. That is not actually how it went down the last time I was in Orthanc. I remember that conversation. I remember what you said. And you can try to gaslight me now. Like, you can try to tell me that you were just trying to do good and, oh, I was so impassioned and so, so fearful for the fate of the world that I lost patience. Yeah. You and me, we both remember exactly what happened. And your words have no power over me whatsoever. But then we get this great pivot. No, I do not think I will come up. But listen, Saruman, for the last time. Will you not come down? Isengard has proved less strong than your hope and fancy made it. So may other things in which you still have trust. Would it not be be well to leave it for a while, to turn to new things, perhaps? Think well, Saruman. Will you not come down? And again, the metaphor here works both ways. Gandalf, will you not leave behind these common folk and ascend to your true level? No, Gandalf says. Will you not leave behind your arrogance and your folly and your false wisdom and come down? Will you not re-enter the world, Saruman? There is still hope for you. But Saruman, of course, rejects it out of hand. Sarah Sarah giving us a multi-purpose quote here from Gandalf. I'm old enough to remember when, fill in the blank. Yes, I've been down this road before. Every single road, in fact, I've been down it before. I I know what's what. I know what's up. Yeah, good. 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 Uh, Heroes and Bards says, uh, no one who talks about the greater good is ever going to do any actual good. Um, Gosh, I like that quite a lot. I'm now trying to think if that does. Mm, There are ways of talking about the greater good, right? But no one who talks about the greater good, capital T, capital G, capital G. You're absolutely right. There are ways of talking about greater virtues. There are ways of talking about about grander things and working towards those grander things that still allow you to remain virtuous. But yes, no one is allowed to kind of co-opt in their arrogance the notion of what is best. You know who knows what is best? Ilúvatar. God knows what is best. Anyone within the mortal realm is going to suffer from an imperfect understanding, right? You know, certainly not Saruman. Even were he the wisest of his order. Even were he the wisest person living in Middle-earth he would still be insufficiently wise to command the greater good, yeah. Rayla Lynn asks, what do you think would have happened if Gandalf went up there or Saruman came down? I've thought about this a lot. Um, If Gandalf went up there, I I can't imagine that ever happening, right? But if Gandalf went up there, he would have fallen. I think Theoden is our point of comparison in both senses here, right? If Gandalf had gone up, if he had succumbed to Saruman's spell, he would have been corrupted. He would have become like Saruman. The story, the spell would have had such power that he too would have fallen to the shadow. He would have become like Boromir or a kind like, of like like pre-redemption Boromir or pre-testing Galadriel, right? Would Gandalf have set out after Frodo to seize the ring, to wield the ring, to use the ring? Yeah, probably, probably. Gandalf more powerful and more knowledgeable in this specific regard than Saruman? Yes, I think that is where our story ends. Our story specifically ends with Gandalf seizing the ring, casting down Sauron, and becoming, despite the intention of the Astari when they entered Middle-earth, becoming a new dark lord. That would absolutely have happened. And probably keeping Saruman as like, uh, Saruman would have been the Wormtongue to Gandalf Saruman, if that makes sense, right? He would have kept Saruman uh, still conniving, still scheming, still plotting against his new master as he plotted against his old. That, I'm pretty sure, is how it would have gone down, though I can't imagine that happening. If Saruman had come down? I like to think that it would have been something like the healing of Theoden. I like to believe that if we could have reached the heart of Saruman here, if he could have descended the stairs of Orthanc and emerged from the gate, he would, too, have said, it is not as dark as I thought. That he could have been restored in a sense. And we can do terrible things and still earn redemption in The Lord of the Rings, right? Galadriel's kind of done terrible things. The rebellion of the Noldor and the preservation of Lothlorian, these are not, I mean, not outright evil things, but not uncomplicated things, not morally questionable things, not, not even kind of philosophically questionable things. Galadriel has kind of, you know, there is no stain on Lothlorian. There is absolutely a stain on Galadriel, despite what Gimli might tell you to the contrary. But Galadriel is redeemed because she faces her moment of temptation and passes. So I think we could, at the very least, right, if not the healing of Theoden King I would have liked to have seen from Saruman or or could imagine seeing from Saruman, the healing of Galadriel. But I have passed the test. And so I will go into the West and remain Galadriel. I will go into the West and remain Saruman. Oh, Gandalf, you're right. Middle-earth is not for me. I have fallen too far. I need to go. I need to go home. I need to go back to Valinor. That, that is what I need to do. I could imagine a version of the story, but... That, as you know from reading ahead, I'm sure, is not the version of the story that we will get. Okay, I am at time, but we have three more slides to get through, and we absolutely have to make this happen. Um, Dark Lord Gandalf is something Saruman really wouldn't like, says Seastar. Yes, as I say, he would have plotted against Gandalf in exactly the same way as he plotted against Sauron, and, and evil would have consumed itself, right? That, that's how these stories always end. Is there a version of this where Gandalf casts down Sauron and becomes the new dark lord and Saruman then in order to destroy Gandalf and theoretically take his place seizes the one ring and casts it into the fires of Mount Doom you know that 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 Saruman golems the one ring maybe maybe I mean yes possibly you know I'm sure there's fan fiction out there. (laughs) Okay, let me see. Uh, Yes, as Jackie says, it would have been very humbling for Saruman to leave his tower, step one, to becoming good. That is exactly right, Jackie. As ever, you have put your finger exactly on the point here. The coming down of Saruman, the descent back into the world, the giving up of his arrogance and his height here, his his superiority, his physical superiority. Yes, that that necessary humility, the necessary humility that would, would accompany that action, would have been the healing step. It's not actually the coming down out of Orthanc and the coming outside. Again, that that action itself would not have changed Saruman, but that sudden shift to humility, pivot to humility would have done it. Yes, there there is hope there for for redemption. Good. Okay, let's see here as we move in, because we're going to get to another excellent beat from Gandalf here. As Gandalf gives him his hope, he says, look, come down. You can go your own way. You can you can just go out into the world, and it's going to be... You can
1: be free. Reasons for leaving you can see from your windows, answered Gandalf. Others will occur to your thought. Your servants are destroyed and scattered. Your neighbors, you have made your enemies, and you have cheated your new master, or tried to do so. When his eye turns hither, it will be the red eye of wrath. But when I say free, I mean free free from bond, of chain or command, to go where you will, even, even to Mordor, Saruman, if you desire. But you will first surrender to me the key of Orthanc and your staff. They shall be pledges of your conduct to be returned later
0: if you merit them. Saruman's face grew livid, twisted with rage, and a red light was kindled in his eyes. He laughed wildly. Later, he cried, and his voice rose to a scream. Later! Yes, when you also have the keys of Barad-dur itself, I suppose, and the crowns of seven kings, and the rods of the five wizards that have purchased yourself a pair of boots many sizes larger than those you wear now. A modest plan, hardly one in which my help is needed. I have other things to do. Do not be a fool.
1: If you wish to treat with me while you have a chance, go away and come back when you are sober, and leave behind these cutthroats and small ragtags that dangle at your tail good day he turned and left the balcony come back saruman said gandalf in a commanding voice to the amazement
0: of the others saruman turned again and as if dragged against his will he came slowly back to the iron rail leaning on it breathing hard his face was lined and shrunken his hand
1: clutched at the heavy black staff like a claw i did not give you leave to go said gandalf sternly i have not finished you have become a fool saruman and yet pitiable "'You might still have turned away from folly and evil and have been of service, "'but you choose to stay and gnaw at the ends of your own old plots. "'Stay, then. "'But I warn you, you will not easily come out again, "'not unless the dark hands of the East stretch out to take you. "'Saruman!' he cried, and his voice grew in power and authority. "'Behold! I am not Gandalf the Grey, whom you betrayed!' I am Gandalf the White who has returned from death. You have no color now, and I cast you from the Order and from the Council. He raised his hand and spoke slowly in a clear, cold voice. Saruman, your staff is
0: broken. There was a crack, and the staff split asunder in Saruman's hand, and the head of it fell down at Gandalf's feet. Go, said Gandalf. With a cry, Saruman fell back and crawled away. Best moment for Gandalf in the entire book? Ah, top three. Definitely top three right there. I mean, facing down the Balrog, pretty, pretty good. We've got a couple of other beats of Gandalf that we're going to get in The Return of the King, which I like a lot, but this is definitely way up there. And it is anchored in pity. And it's difficult, I think, to read this passage and not think of his conversation with Frodo when Frodo's complaining, you know, what a pity it was that Bilbo didn't kill Gollum. Pity, says Gandalf. Pity it was that stayed his hand. Pity is a kingly virtue, and Gandalf here is displaying it in great abundance. There are great reasons, Saruman, for you to come down. There are compelling reasons for you to come down. Not least of all, by the way, the betrayal of Sauron. And when the eye of Barador turns upon you, when it looks west to Isengard... I wouldn't want to still be here. I definitely wouldn't want to still be here surrounded by the trappings of, of the red eye of Mordor. That would be really, really bad. But when I say free, I mean free. Free from bond of chain or command. You can come out and you can leave. The two conditions, you give me the key to Orthanc and you give me your staff. But even those, they shall be pledges of your conduct to be returned later if you merit them. Convince me, Saruman. Redeem yourself. Seek redemption in the first place, and you can have these things back. None of this is permanent. There is still hope for you. But of course, in Saruman's pride, in his fury, there isn't. And he starts casting these insults later. Yes, when you also have the keys of Barador itself, I suppose, and the crowns of seven kings and the rods of the five wizards. Yes, of course, Gandalf, I'm going to hand this stuff over to you so that when you've accumulated all of this power, you can deign to return it to me. I don't think that's actually going to happen. Oh, and of course, you've purchased yourself a pair of boots many sizes larger than those you wear now. Yeah. Yeah. Saruman sees Gandalf as he would see himself standing at the foot of Orthanc. This is exactly Saruman's plan. To gather the crowns of seven kings and the rods of five wizards, purchase himself a new pair of boots. Yeah, he's bitter here and vengeful. Hardly one in which my help is needed. I have other things to do. Do not be a fool. If you wish to treat with me while you have a chance, go away and come back when you are sober. A great put-down. A sick burn from Saruman there on the uh, the balcony of Orthanc. A really great burn on... uh, on uh, Gandalf in this moment, but it isn't enough. He turns and leaves the balcony and then we get Gandalf the White uncloaked. Come back, Saruman. This is the closest that we get to a spell. This is the closest thing that we get... um uh, to the to the imperative mood, right? This is the, inclu- the closest thing that we get to a command, as we say, said Gandalf in a commanding voice. To the amazement of the others, Saruman comes back against his will. He cannot fight the will of Gandalf at this point. I didn't give you leave to go. I have not finished. You have become a fool and yet you are still pitiable. You might still have turned away from folly and evil and been of service, but you choose to stay and know at the ends of your old plots. Fine. Fine. You've made your choice. Great. You're staying in Orthanc. You're not going to leave Orthanc. You're going to find it very, very difficult to leave that tower now. Unless, of course, the Claw of Mordor comes and plucks you out. Oh, and uh, BT-dubs, you are not in the Order anymore. Um, Behold, I am not Gandalf the Grey whom you betrayed. I am Gandalf the White who has returned from death. You have no color now, and I cast you from the Order and from the Council. Notice, I I just mentioned the imperative mood that we get there. Come back, Saruman. The rest of Gandalf's... (sighs) action here, for want of a better word, isn't actually commanding. It is descriptive. It is indicative of what has already happened here. I did not give you leave to go. I have not finished. These are statements of facts. You have become a fool, Saruman, and yet pitiable statement of fact. Stay then. But I warn you, you will not easily come out again. Not do not come out again, but you will not easily come out again. I am not Gandalf the Grey whom you betrayed. I am Gandalf the White who has returned from death. Statements of fact. You have no color now, and I cast you from the Order and from the Council. I cast you from is the closest that we get, but it still is in that indicative mood, right? It's still a description of something that is true. You have no color now. Not, I take from you your color, Saruman the Many-Colored. No, you have no color. It has already happened, and I am observing it. I am just telling you something that is already true. You have no color now, and I cast you from the Order and from the Council. And even then, Saruman, your staff is broken. And the staff breaks. Not, Saruman, I am breaking your staff. Not, hey, Saruman, screw you. Not, you know, this is an action that I am taking. I, Gandalf the White, break your staff. No, Saruman, your staff is broken. There was a crack and the staff split asunder and Saruman's hand and the head of it fell down at Gandalf's feet. Go, said Gandalf. And with a cry, Saruman fell back and crawled away. Let me see here as I catch up with the chat. Uh, Saruman has been put in the ultimate timeout, says Jackie, which I love a lot. Yes. Uh, JY says, actually, Saruman got fired. Um... Fired. Fired from the council? Fired from fired from the order? Yes, both of those things, I suppose. Uh yeah, you're 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 out of here, Saruman. No, thank you. Don't call us. We won't call you. This is you know, we've talked to HR back with the Astari, and we have some real concerns about your conduct. So um yeah, you're just gonna have to stay here and wait for Saruman to come get you, I guess. Either we are gonna win in which case, things are going to go really badly for you, Saruman. Or Sauron's going to win. In which case, things are going to go really badly for you, Saruman. Like, it's done. It's over. Well, it's almost over. We still have the throwing of the palantir, which we're not going to name in this chapter. We'll get to next week. But let us not play games. Let us not play games here among friends. Let's, uh, let's pay attention to the throwing of the palantir. So the palantir crashes down. This heavy crystal ball crashes down upon the steps. The murderous rogue,
1: cried Eomer. But Gandalf was unmoved. no. That was not thrown by Saruman, he said, nor even at his bidding, I think. It came from a window far above. A parting shot from Master Wormtongue, I fancy, but ill-aimed. The aim was poor, maybe, because he could not make up his mind which he hated more, you or Saruman, said Aragorn. That may be so, said Gandalf. Small comfort will those two have in their companionship. They will gnaw one another with words. But the punishment is just. If Wormtongue ever comes out of Orthanc alive, it will be more than he deserves.' "'Here, my lad, I'll take that. I did not ask you to handle
0: it,' he cried, turning sharply and seeing Pippin coming up the steps, slowly as if he were bearing a great weight. He went down to meet him and hastily took the dark globe from the hobbit, wrapping it in the folds of his cloak.
1: "'I will take care of this,' he said. "'It is not a thing, I guess, that Solomon would have chosen to cast away.' "'But you may have other things to cast,' said Gimli. "'If that's the end of the debate, let us go out of stone's throw, at least.' "'It is the end,' said Gandalf. "'Let us go.'
0: We'll put a pin in Pippin picking up the Palantir. A lot of alliteration in that sentence. Didn't intend that. Quite pleased with how it turned out. Not gonna lie. We'll put a pin in Pippin picking up the Palantir and return to that next week, of course, as we delve deeper into the depths of the Crystal Globe that has been cast out by Wormtongue. Chance, if chance you call it, is this you catastrophe? No, this is not Eucatastrophe, I think. This is much closer to that that oftentimes parallel impulse within Tolkien's Legendarium for evil to defeat itself. Here, Wormtongue takes a vengeful action and casts down an object of incalculable value from Orthanc. And he doesn't do any... Uh, Of course he doesn't do any good with it. He does not achieve his intended goal with it because he is riven by hatred. I have no doubt that Aragorn is entirely right. The aim was poor maybe because he couldn't make up his mind which he hated more. You or Saruman, says Aragorn. Absolutely right, Aragorn. And is that not the nature of evil? Is it not the nature of evil to falter in its plans, to fail to reach its goals because it is defined itself by hatred and by fury and by selfishness and by arrogance and by greed and by all the things that define evil within the frame of Tolkien's work. Let's uh, wrap up. I'm I'm running very late and I really do need to wrap up. So we're going to conclude our chapter. As I said, we'll circle back around to the Palantir next week, but we're going to conclude with a little uh, cameo appearance from Treebeard here at the end of this chapter. Yes,
1: we must go and go now, said Gandalf. I fear that I must take your gatekeepers from you, but you will manage well enough without them. Maybe I shall, said Treebeard, but I shall miss them. We have become friends in so short a while that I think I must be getting hasty, growing backwards toward youth, perhaps. But there they are the first new thing under sun or moon that I have seen for many a long, long day. I shall not forget them. I have put their names into the long list. Ents will remember it. Ents the earthborn, old as mountains, the wide walkers water drinking, and hungry as hunters, the hobbit children, the laughing folk, the little people. They shall remain friends as long as leaves are renewed. Fare you well, But if you hear news up in your pleasant land, in the Shire, send me word. You know what I mean, word or sight of the Entwives. Come yourselves if you can. We will, said Merry and Pippin together, and they turned away hastily.
0: Treebeard looked at them and was silent for a while, shaking his head thoughtfully. And so a parting is taken between the Ents and the Hobbits, but not without lasting impact. Treebeard has done something unprecedented. He has done something that has not been done for the longest span of years. He has added to the list. Remember the list that he recited to Merry and Pippin when first they met? Not knowing of hobbits, reciting the names of all the things in the world, beginning with the four sentient races, beginning with elves and ents and dwarves and men. No space there for hobbits. But now, thanks to the heroism, thanks to the virtue, thanks to... The the specific identity of Merry and Pippin, they have been added to the list. This is a great and mythic moment for hobbits. This is a great and mythic moment for Ents. This is a huge moment in the history, the unfolding long history of Middle-earth. But here it is anchored in this personal connection. We have become friends in so short a while that I think I must be getting hasty growing backwards towards youth, perhaps. Treebeard himself has been renewed. He himself has quickened and become perhaps less like a tree than he used to be, or less like a tree than he was when Merry and Pippin met him first. It's really beautiful. I love the addition. Hungry as hunters, the hobbit children, the laughing folk, the little people. It's a pretty good description. Actually, it's a pretty good description. Not hunters themselves, but as hungry as hunters. I like that. Yes. Yes. And Jared says, I love that Mary and Pippin turned away hastily. It's so, so good. Yes. Alliteration in the long list, says Varieg of Khan, Yes. Hungry as hunters, the hobbit children. It's very good. It's extremely good. I, I love the poem very much. Yes. Turn quickly to hide their tears, says Lynn. Yes, absolutely. Right. As, as I think we all might be tempted to do. That's certainly my reading of that. Mary and Pippin. T- uh, we will, said Mary and Pippin together. And they turned away hastily. Treebeard looked at them and was silent for a while, shaking his head thoughtfully. Shaking his head with those old, old eyes, like pools of deep memory, as Pippin described them. Yeah. That is going to do it for chapter 10 of The Two Towers, for for book three of The Two Towers. We're going to return next week, as I said, let me call up this last slide here. Next week, chapter three, uh, sorry, book three, chapter 11, The Palantir, 10 p.m. Eastern, Thursday, December the 21st, 2017. Next Thursday, December the 21st, you guys. This year is... Running out both swiftly and not a moment too soon, we will gather together to talk about Chapter 11 of Book 3, The Palantir, to talk about The Fool of a Turk and to talk a little about Aragorn, too. There are some really interesting moments in that chapter. And we're going, of course, to talk about Book 3 in its entirety. We're going to talk a little about... Choices to talk a little about purpose, to talk a little about what is practical and what is right and how we are supposed to distinguish between those two choices in general, I think are probably going to be a pretty major theme of next week's discussion and I can't wait to get to it. Then we're going to take a skip week between Christmas and Hogmanay, as I said. there I will be, I don't know if I mentioned this on a There and Back Again podcast recording, I will be releasing... Uh, a little audiobook for you all in the five days from Boxing Day to New Year's Eve. I'm going to be reading uh, Charles Dickens' Immortal A Christmas Carol. I'm going to be reading one stave of that per day and putting that up on Point North, putting that up on YouTube. I don't have a podcast feed for that, but it will be available from the website so you can download it and put it on your devices and hopefully I can keep you company in that little that little uh, festive interregnum there between Christmas and New Year's Eve. I hope that you all have a very joyous holiday. As I said, though, we'll, we'll gather back again next week uh, on the 21st to talk about the annual. Of book three. I can't wait for that. Thank you all so much for your company. Thank you all so much for spending Star Wars evening with me, I suppose, and not going out to see The Last Jedi. I hope that some of you at least have plans to do that. If not tomorrow, then at least over the weekend, and maybe, hey, we'll gather together to talk about that soon over on the Story and Star Wars podcast, also available from pointnorthmedia.com. Thank you all for joining me live here to Rayla Lynn and to Father John and to Jackie and to Ty and to Becca and to Shane and to Heroes and Bards and gosh, so many, so many others. Thank you, Lynn, for being here with us tonight. I will talk to you all again next week. Until then, Take care. Good night all.